Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. All right. I think we're all set for the first uh, Petroners podcast of January 2022. I am honored uh, to be back here today. This is episode 35 of the Petroners podcast. We've had some change-ups, some uh, different hosting and things, so I apologize to all the listeners for the lag um, in getting this out to you. The last podcast we had was with Dan Pickering, Um, but I'm honored today to have Mark Rossano back to speak with me. There really isn't a better person to to talk with about, I mean, it's January, the first podcast of the year. It is episode 35. And I was going to basically just sit here and talk to myself and thought, this is not going to work. People would rather have me having a conversation with someone. And there's so many gazillion issues to talk about. And Mark's probably the only person I think can go toe-to-toe with me on all these issues um, and bring something to the table and push back. And I think he's willing to interrupt me as well. So that's good. Uh, <laughs> so w- without further ado, um, hey, Mark, how are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. It's I'm I'm happy to uh, to be the first of uh, 2022. Hopefully, ushering in a, a better year than what we had last year. So it's a good way to kick things off. It is, and you're actually the first of a very star-studded lineup. I have some I have some great speakers lined up. I have Tatiana Mitrova coming on to talk about Russia um, and Ukraine, and then I'll be talking with uh, I'll be actually talking with Steve Coonan on his book um, Unsettled, which I think will be awesome. So you're you're the first of many, but we have because of all that we have a lot of topics to cover today. And we're going to bucket this into three chunks, and I'm sure we'll uh, go on some tangents and diverge. Um, Mark has a hard stop um, at the top of the hour, so we'll keep this under an hour. But the three buckets are really, I mean, today we're, we're expecting inflation data to come in at any moment. Um, so obviously you're seeing market swings, and we've got the Fed, which is hilarious because folks said that they weren't going to raise rates at all this year. And now people are calling for Goldman's calling for for four rate hikes. So we have this sort of U.S. inflation fed. I think we can bucket into that um, in, in this topic as well as oil prices and OPEC um, and where things are going there. And and really, um, the, we have to talk about the, the rig count going up and uh, where the frack spread count is as well. The second major topic is this energy crisis. And I really want to get into this because we've touched on this in previous podcasts. I've talked about it. Lots of folks are talking about it. But I have put this awesome slide deck together, and uh, so my clients have seen it and folks have seen it, but if you're looking at what's going on in the UK energy crisis and actually in Europe and you're following the European Central Bank, um, it's not good. It's actually really, really bad in terms of what uh, prices are being paid, especially for utilities, um, especially in Germany, some of the highest utility prices in the world. Um, and that's, so we're seeing all the, these problems within Europe. That's being exacerbated, obviously, with Russia putting troops on the border in Ukraine. Uh, those negotiations do not seem to be going too well between the U.S. and Russia right now, and we also have uh, we also have the Europe actually a little bit pissed at the U.S. because they're concerned that if we do put sanctions on on Russia, um, if they do invade Ukraine, then they'll suffer the consequences of high prices. I'm not sure how we we square this circle because that's going to be a problem no matter what we do. And the lastly uh, to talk about is China. There have been uh, if, if you've just kind of followed this podcast and you followed the end of the year and the beginning of the year with China. Um, the property sector issues have not went away. Uh, the Evergrande issue was not exactly ring fenced. And um, there are a lot of concerns from an economic growth standpoint and a lot of uh, GDP figures that haven't come out, but they've been revised to well below 4% for the fourth quarter of 2021. So um, those are the three main buckets that we'll get into. So without further ado, we'll, we'll go through the US and stuff quickly so we can get into the really meat of this um, stuff going on abroad. Um, and obviously, we, we should probably touch on uh, Kazakhstan because it's got 
to about 2 million barrels a day of crude oil production and Russia's involved in there too. So is China. So that'll be exciting. So Mark, uh, U.S. inflation and and Fed. And what do you think of Goldman coming out and all these guys who seem pretty muted last year saying, oh, now we're going to have four rate hikes this year? Well, the, the problem with uh, with their their estimates for inflation is that they've constantly been wrong, which is why when you look at the city inflation surprise index, it went to the moon because everything kept going out, coming in way, way above expectations. They kept getting pulled higher. So now they're sitting there and looking at what has happened. And and when you look at the amount of money and liquidity that sits in the market, like RRP came out right around $1.6 trillion again. So you're watching so much money just sitting there sloshing back and forth. And the thing that that people, I, I think, forgot when you look at the different structures, and, and I've tried to be really clear on, 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 on breaking them down, is the flexible versus sticky. So flexible inflation is what, you know, is gasoline, is the things that are going to move day in and day out that are going to fluctuate. But people ignore the sticky side. And the sticky is where you're starting to see Powell get concerned. You're starting to see the Fed get concerned because that is not going away anytime soon. You know, because for some things that people don't appreciate when it comes to inflation is it costs money to change your prices. You know, and and it's always going to it's always going to fluctuate on how much it costs. So because you have to change your your pricing, you have to change, you know, how the suppliers are going to be uh, fed down. What you know, what is it going to do for your wages? What is it going to do for your for your uh, distribution? So there's a lot that goes into changing weight, uh, changing prices, and you're really seeing that stick around. And and <clears throat> and as the supply chain got better, everyone's like, oh well, supply chain's improving. It's like, but let's look at wages. You know, let's look at how real wages have completely. Uh, underwhelmed in comparison to where inflation is. So as things on the supply chain get a bit better, we're going to see that get pushed into wages. When you break it out into its different quartiles, the poorest quartile has gotten wealthier. You know, they're, they're, they've seen the biggest increase in hourly wages, but the top quartile or the most or the richest quartile has actually gone down. So when you look at the way this is this is working out, yes, you know, you have people who are on the poorer spectrum getting paid more, but it's not even keeping, keeping pace with where prices have gone. And that's, that's rent, that's food, that's um, just general living costs. And some of those are not going to go down. They may stop going up. And this is what I, I've, I've really kind of transitioned into. It's the rate of inflation. You know, everyone's looking at this and saying, well, the rate is going, like inflation's going down. It's like, time out. It's like inflation is not going down. The rate of change is slowing. And, and it may even go negative in January and February, but then we're going to get a reacceleration as we come into March and April. So you're not going to get deflation. You're going to get this stagflation into another inflationary push. And then I, I think you start to see stagflation bite hard. Well, and that's the problem I have with, um, and there's great comments on, on stagflation. I think that's What's really troubling for folks is that I, I don't one I don't think the market is uh, baking that in. So when the market people are are overly concerned about what's the inflation number going to be and how's the Fed going to react, and I don't think they're and I, I did hear somebody mention it this morning on CNBC, but you don't hear hardly talked about all the role the impact of inflation is basically a tax on everything and everyone. Right. Um, it will it will impact earnings, right? So yes. all these companies have to pay more for stuff, and yes, you can pass it along so much, but guess what? 
when you everything's 7% more, the consumer's paying more and the consumer then has less money and the businesses have less money. So this eventually starts impacting on actual earnings. And I think that's a piece that people have not realized. And the other piece is that the simple, simple side of that is that interest rates are going up. I think the Fed, unlike the European Central Bank, which I would like to talk about because you mentioned the sticky uh, you know, the, the sticky side. And and the ECB had a couple speeches that they came out with. If you, if you go to their website, the European Central Bank had a couple speeches, one on energy um, and an interview that they did. And I found it fascinating because, I mean, they've really stuck. I mean, we've seen the Bank of England actually raise rates, which I thought was um, the International Monetary Fund had come out last month and, and warned them about inflation. You know, the Bank of England, they didn't care why they have inflation. They raise rates because of inflation. And I think the Fed has come to those terms of doesn't matter if it's energy, doesn't matter what it is. It's that inflation is here and it's real. And the problem is the Fed is realizing and they realized this before, but I think Jerome Powell now has job security, so he's willing to be a hawk, um, which is just annoying because he should have done this before. But <laughs> the fact that, you know, the Fed is, I mean, we have 3.9% 3, 3. unemployment. So the whole, we don't have full un, full employment. We have record job quits. We have, um, we still have massive job openings and people are moving around jobs. So for the weird COVID labor market <clears> thing, <throat> whatever it is, you're basically at full employment. And so the Fed has to act because they know right. they're going to have this inflation. That wage inflation, very, very real. People are, yes, they're making a little bit more money, but they're paying way, way more money at the grocery right. store. And that all these things come together really drive me a little crazy because it's interesting with the European Central Bank, they're not willing to increase rates. Like they, they have taken the opposite tact and saying, well, about half of our inflation is energy and therefore we're not going to raise rates. Well, Europe is really hell bent on this energy transition as well. And so they need it to go well and they need low rates for half of this ener for, for tech and, and for energy and general energy, you know, transition stuff to actually work. And so they're not, at least they're saying now that they're not going to raise rates because they think they can handle, they think the rate will, will of inflation will decrease next year and it'll be in line with expectations. And I, I do think that the chunk, when you start breaking out, I was looking at by country and you can look at Germany and you can look at Lithuania and you can look at all these various countries. And the problem is while the European central bank says that it's energy, um, when you look at the bars of each country, it's not all the same. So it's not like, well, the, the rate of inflation was this high um, and it was all energy for one country and it was all transport or something for another. It changes by country. And I think that that's the reality in the U.S. is that, yes, energy is a huge component. Natural gas prices, electricity prices, all that is going up. But everything else, um, especially food, is a huge component of that as well. And housing prices, I think it's over. I mean, I couldn't even believe it. it's the, the Schiller index. If you look on the, the Fred economic data, but it's over it's the whole average home price in America is over $400,000. Yep. I remember when people <clears throat> were shocked in Denver a couple of years ago when the average home price in Denver was over $400,000. Like this is America. That is a, that's way outside of, of the realm for mo for many and most people in the U S is to put 20% down on a house like that. So I think these, these, one, the wage increases and the wage inflation is is not as good as people think because it doesn't impact, it doesn't benefit everyone. It gets passed along with inflation. And two, it's just these costs are, um, yes, they could, they inflation could stop tomorrow, but unless they come down, it's a whole different story. Well, and that's the the issue when when you look at inflation, deflation, and then like when you you bring up a point, a great point on margins. So when you look at prices paid versus prices received. So prices paid is typically your leading indicator. You know, it's what the company paid to bring in whatever the raw materials may be, whatever the inventory needs. But then the prices received is what you actually got for that. And there's always a lag. You know, you're, you're, there's always that two, three months. 
So as prices paid continues to grind higher, and now it's actually started to flatline, it's still there's still going to be some pass through because at it's going to go until the point where the consumer says no more. And that's and you're starting to see that now. You're starting to see retail sales peter out. Like you were talking about real um real income, like real income is down negative 1.6%. So you're actually seeing income now at a negative level because you're not seeing the same the same type of uh, pass through. Credit is jumping. Why? Because savings rates are back to uh, November. Uh, I'm sorry, now October of 2019 levels. So that means that government transfers have stopped. You saw a big increase in in uh, in payday loans and cash advances. Things that you see when people are starting to get stressed again, and you're seeing that debt increase because you, the people are struggling to maintain their everyday lives just based on underlying cost. Then when you look at the ECB and, and where they are, they're about, I'm going to say about six months behind us when you consider where we are in the inflation scale. And, and I'm speaking on the sticky side, not even going to touch energy for a moment, just on the sticky side of things, they're about six months behind us. And the other thing that is is kind of missed in this whole uh, back and forth, when you're looking at the, what is happening with the ECB you know, you know the BOE, the BOE raised rates. You had the South Korean um, uh, central Just bank also raised rates. ECB, is central bank, BOE is Bank of England. Yes, for our energy listeners who may not. So, be and so then the South Korean uh, na- uh, central bank has now raised rates, and you're starting to see this rate move higher because people are starting to panic. You're starting to see people get a little bit concerned on where are things going, how are things going to continue to go forward, and what comes next. So what comes next when you're talking to the ECB, when you're looking at what's happening within Europe, you know, they, they're going to slow down on their PEPP buying. So you're going to start to see some of the quantitative easing come down, but they're so fixated on the rate side. But rates, you, you set where you think the rates should be, and then you try to manage it but the market is still going to set rates. And as long as you're no longer the biggest buyer, as we're seeing in the Fed, because I was having a conversation with someone today where I, you know, I, I said I made a call at the beginning of, of the year in February of 2021 that we were going to get four rate hikes in 2022 and that inflation was going to go to the moon. And I was crazy. I was told I, I also said that the 10 year is going to be over 2% by uh, midterm elections. I still hold to that. And it's and we've had these big moves like now, who doesn't know there's inflation? Who doesn't know that it's what is the next incremental move in rates? And it's to, and, and it, the same can be said in uh, Europe. Your largest buyer is stopping and the Fed is stopping. The ECB is stopping. They're going to slow down these purchases. And, and I think in the U.S., you're going to see it happen much faster because they're starting to panic. And then you might say, well, why like now going into real estate? Well, what does that do to the 30 year, uh, their 30 year bond, which then drives the 30 year mortgage? What does that do to the down payments? And we're already, you need and to we're see. Already, we're already seeing, uh, we're already seeing the, the 30 years go up if you're, if you're right. looking at those and that's that all, all this is, com- all this is coming together into this, it, this perfect storm. I, and I think this is where earning season, people have to really watch this. Um, and we'll, we'll pivot and come back to energy in just a second, but people really have to watch this from a, the, the earnings season is because the yes the Fed right now and the EC and the European Central Bank and all these entities and a lot of entities in the in the world are still putting money still being putting money into the system right 
the Fed has made it pretty clear when then the Fed minutes came out last week, they're going to stop that rapidly. I mean, that's probably, I expect, I wanted them to, to stop that, you know, two times, you know, their, their two meetings ago, I wanted them to say, no, we're done with this tomorrow, but they want to ease the market into it. And it's interesting because every time Jerome Powell gets up and talks, he basically makes he calms everyone and he sounds pretty dovish and he talks about full unemployment and he sounds that way. Right. And, mm -hmm. and the market goes higher and it's great. But then the Fed minutes come out and it's a completely different story. And that's what happened with this is the he basically sat he sounded dovish. And I got some pushback on, on Twitter and I thought, are you kidding me? He definitely sounded dovish. He calmed the markets. The market went up. That is dovish. Now, his the Fed minutes did not sound dovish. And it, they didn't they came out and basically said, we're going to. We're going to have their real concerns about inflation, which means you should have stopped all the quantitative easing forever ago and you can't be bu buying stuff anymore. And that means that the market is not going to have this big wash of cash that it did before. So that's going to probably start, I, I'm guessing is going to stop immediately as soon as they can. And then we're going to see, I agree. I think if, if, if four or three, it doesn't really matter. We're going to have rate hikes immediately. I wonder if they're going to stop the asset purchases and then also have a rate hike and that same in the same breadth. I, I think they are. And one of the things that is, is, is missed, especially when you look at, you know, because everyone talks about, oh, well, quantitative easing, but it's like, what are they buying? And then you look at what they're buying and they're buying, obviously, you know, they're, uh, you know, federal bonds, federal loans, but also mortgage-backed securities. And so you look at the housing prices, you look at where prices are, and it's like, guys, we really need to back housing. You really need to sit sit there and buy these mortgage-backed securities. Like, at what point do you look at this and say, "Wow, and they have we they really have inflated this"? All. And yes. and that's where that's where you 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 look at where things are going and how. And so I actually think that you get a massive acceleration in the slowdown in purchasing of uh, of of Fed uh, bonds as well as MBS, and then you get your rate your first rate hike that's going to come in March. And I think you get three in a quick succession, then they'll do a pause, see where the market is, but they, they don't want to get in front of the market. That's always been their thing. They're very reactionary. And now, you know, the, the newest sentiment uh, rating is 90% of people think that there's going to be four rate hikes, which essentially just paves the way for them to do four. You know, the, and the question is going to be how much, I, I don't think they'll ever do more than a quarter point because that'll scare people. But then when you look at what the ECB is doing, you know, and, and you look at the, and, and I, just to clarify what PEPP stands for, you know, the pandemic emergency purchase program, they're going to slow that down in Q1 because I think they want to test the market. And the problem with what they're looking at right now is the consumer, and this is looking at PMIs or the producer uh, manager index. Uh, when you look at what's happening there, you're seeing a huge drop off in services. And, and, I, and I know some people are going to want to point to Omicron and COVID. It's really not. It, it's an excuse that people use, and, and, I, and I get it. And I'm not saying that it doesn't show up in the numbers to some degree, but the impact in, December, in November and December of 2021 versus 2020 is vastly different. And so when you look at the services, the local consumer is struggling more and more in Europe. And then when you look at Germany, which is a very export centric nation, they send and they rely on China in a huge degree. Mm -hmm. And China's not coming back. They this is not something where it's like, oh, well, it's 2022, the you know, calendar turned. They're they're gonna they're gonna stimulate. It's like, guys, oh, don't worry, we'll, they, we'll be getting into they that. Can't. We'll be getting into the China. Yeah. 
So, so when you look at where Germany is and where some of these guys, now they're going to get some benefit from the fact that some car manufacturing is picking back up, but you're, you're almost at 30 weeks, uh, delay, uh, delivery delays on getting uh, chips that has not gotten any better, which I did say, uh, at the beginning of last year. And I was told that I was crazy to think that it was going to last until the end of 2022. I was told it was going to all be fixed by 2021. So I was right again, just, just, well, so- just highlighting. Cause, cause I know people like to push back on the fact that I, I haven't been a, a bull, a, a raging bull on oil prices, but when you look at the economic backdrops and how this all plays out, I think that we're really starting to see the cracks in the underlying economy, which is going to be pressured on the fact that central banks are raising rates. You have, you have fiscal and monetary drag that the economy is going to have to try to overcome and it just won't be able to, which is going to lead to a much bigger slowdown versus expectations. Yeah. And I think there's a little, if you listen to my uh, podcast with Dan Pickering that dropped last week, um, which is, it, it is an hour and 20 minutes. It is, it's really good because Dan pushes back on me and he takes more of a counter approach of just saying it takes a long time for the shoe to drop. And I, I have been a, you know, you and I are both a perma bears on China. And I think it's, it's hard because a lot of folks are, I sent, I sent Mark this podcast over the weekend called the little red podcast. And there were two folks on it, um, which were great, um, that talk about, that we're talking about China and they, they were the antithesis of one another. And I thought it was fascinating because if you ever find it, people who are bullish on China, they've written a book on it. They're based in China. Um, usually they're, they're professor in China. So they have this bias. And then you have the people who actually it's, it's Ann Stevenson young. Um, and she's at, she founded Jake co-founder of J capital research. Her research is phenomenal Her stories. She actually chuckles in the middle of her, in the middle of her interview, she like is laughing because they're asking her anecdotal stories about, you know, stuff in China. And she's like, look, it's a joke. She's like, the whole thing is the whole thing's falling apart. And she gives all these stories, which I'll get into a moment. But the point is, is that you have the people on and this goes for the wider economy, the people that are pretty bullish that just think everything's going to be fine. And the people that that think that we're going to work through all this and the Fed will do things slowly and people will get excited and because they've seen the market respond, right? The Fed has done things slowly, the market's raging and things are great valuations are out of control. And I think that's a reality is that things do have to slow down. You just can't have all this money sloshing the system. And I think on, you know, the more democratic side, especially from a political standpoint in the U.S. is if people are pointing to, oh my gosh, look at the supply chain issues, look at Omicron, look at everything. This is actually when we need help. We don't need to be slowing down. And the reality is, is that just like the American people and I think the country are saying, one, they're not going to stand for another shutdown. And two, um, the economy can't actually handle the stimulus because they already have inflation and we have these slowing effects. And I think that the the slowing that's happening, I, <clears throat> there's a couple things on the supply chain side. China's linked to most of it. Um, you mentioned the Germany stuff, and I, I always point out that inflation and high energy prices together are really important. And it's something that the European Central Bank has mentioned, but didn't do a very good job of saying, okay, together, these are really problematic. When we have high oil prices and high natural and gas prices, and we haven't had both together, we usually haven't had those high natural gas prices with it, and high inflation, all those together have a really hard are, are impact governments, impact industry, impact production, and impact the consumer. And for some place like Germany, when they're making stuff, when they're manufacturing stuff, and they're connected to China, they are hit really, really hard because they're feeling the inflation, they're feeling the supply chain impacts, and they're directly connected to Chinese economy. 
Also, what's fascinating is that Lithuania, who has opened, you know, Lithuania had fun messing with the with the Chinese all of last year. They opened a Taiwanese office, and and most people don't open a Taiwanese office. They open a, an office called Taipei. They put the label on it called Taipei, and literally this pissed off China so much because Lithuania, this small country in Europe, just puts a a sign on the door that says Taiwanese representative office, and that stirred enough of a storm within China that they have actually banned. I mean, they've impacted the sales and it's impacted the supply chain because they're now having stuff stuck. Um, Germany is not getting uh, equipment and parts they need for stuff. If it's touching Lithuania, China's not basically doing business with them. So it's something I want to point out to people that these supply chain things are really real and China's stance on on the politics and the geopolitics are really real. So when people say China is this benevolent, peaceful actor and they don't, they mean well and it's no big deal, this tiny little country, Lithuania, changes their door sign um, and puts Taiwan instead of Taipei. And you're feeling supply chain impacts now in Germany because of parts that touch Lithuania and Germany. Mm-hmm. And that it's a big deal because it bleeds into this bigger issue, which is going on. Uh, obviously within China. And I think this is our, we can segue to China and loop back to the, the, the energy crisis in, in Europe. Sorry, go ahead. Well, so, uh, so in, in Europe, you know, when you look at what they're trying to do to solve some of the near term pressure, it's just throw money at the issue, which you're seeing yes. them, uh, you know, essentially say, oh, well, the consumer can, is going to pay X and then anything above that, we're going to pay Y. It's like, all right, well, how are you paying for that? Like how, how, uh, how many, t- how much tax revenue is going to that? How much are you going to have to borrow to do that? So when you look at the stress that they're putting on the economy in the future for, to fix something that they created, let's be fair. And now they, they refuse to recognize that they created it. And, and there's clear ways to fix this. It won't be fixed overnight by any means. There's, there's some easy ways to do it where you have a moratorium on some of the carbon taxes you know, you, you, you incentivize some uh, near-term burning of coal. There's ways that you can you can bridge this gap right now to get to the other side, but they're I think unwilling to do it. you might be talking it. about a completely different European Central Bank or Europe when you're talking. Right. They're, they're, exactly, exactly. They're all they, in, they'll never do it. They'll never do it. And there's two things. There was an interview with RTE that, um, that a member of the executive board of the ECB did, which is posted on European Central Bank website. And there's a, um, they call it, the speech is called Looking Through Higher Energy Prices, monetary policy and the green transition. And this is where they talk. What's fascinating is because, I mean, Europe is in this crux of a massive energy price storm. I mean, we we are seeing there's not a lot of... the Energy Information Administration, we are extremely blessed in the U.S. because it's extremely transparent. We have tons of data. We have weekly reports, and it's just awesome. All, all kinds of more information than you could ever need. You do not have that in, in in the same in Europe, and so we're all looking at different price things. But basically, I mean, we have very high energy prices in Europe. They've come down. I mean, what is the terawatt? You're seeing them in, it's what, over $200 per terawatt hour. That's mm-hmm. come down. It's like $40. It was like $40 per MMBTU. That's come down because we have this... Apparently, the flotilla everyone is talking about of these LNG tankers from the U.S., which are coming into um, coming into uh, Europe, which is apparently bringing down just the idea of that is bringing down um, gas prices. But two things I want to point out by the European Central Bank is that they cite these high when they're talking about inflation, they're talking and they, they talk about their inflationary pressures, they have to cite gas prices directly and they have to talk about the issue with Russia. And they say, I mean, th- they're in such a precarious position that they aren't getting gas from Russia right now. So we're not seeing, I mean, we've seen Russia really um, pull down on one o- over the course of the year, they let the stocks draw down and then they stopped 
letting gas come in, um, really reduce it to as low as possible levels as they can. They've got troops on the border of Ukraine and they've put, we were seeing a pretty muted response out of Germany and other countries, I think, because they're very fearful because if prices keep going up, they're really in trouble. And you're hearing on Wall Street Journal and Financial Times, you're hearing German utility providers going under. Well, this is a big deal because we've had 30 utility providers in the UK go under just since September. So you only had 49 to begin with. So, or actually, sorry, 41. So Ofgem, the the, the UK energy regulator, Ofgem, O-F-G-E-M, Great Britain's independent energy regulator, as of June of 2021, you had 49 utility providers on their website. Now you have 30 that have went under and you have 25, over 25% of your UK electricity bill is quote, for environmental slash social obligation. So over 25% of your bill is an ESG tax, essentially. And if you actually look at the problem here is that the UK, and I point this out specifically because they they did put out a report, which is awesome. It's their government report. And they tell you how much energy, you know, renewable capacity that they have, renewable capacity additions, and where all the energy is coming from in the quarter and how it's changed quarter over quarter. And this, I haven't seen the same thing for Germany, but I'm, I'm assuming it's it's similar. The grids are different, which I'll get into in just a second. But what we see in, in the UK is that they had um, all-time highs for renewable capacity generation, right? They added tons of wind, tons of solar, um, and lots of onshore wind, lots of offshore wind, et cetera. And that's what the fatigue role of the International Energy Agency and many entities within, um, within Europe are basically just saying, we need to double down on wind and solar. Um, and the more wind and solar we have, the more capacity we have, we won't have these problems. And that's simply not true. Um, and I point this out because we are facing this problem in Colorado where Excel wants to get rid of all coal by 2028. Um, and basically our, our grid is largely renewable. And I think it's extremely problematic. So what happened was in in the UK, offshore and onshore wind and hydroelectricity declined massively in the um, from if you're comparing Q3 2020 to Q3 2021, all three of those segments, hydro and wind and actually solar, all declined massively. Renewable power generation in the UK for Q3 2021 was at the lowest level since 2017. And that was because they didn't have enough sun, they didn't have enough rain, and they didn't have enough wind. So no matter how much generation they had, and it's really problematic because they went from you know a day where they'd have 20% of their grid being wind down to 1%. And then they drew down hard on gas and and they didn't have the gas. Um, we've talked about this in previous podcasts. I've talked about it, but they didn't have the gas. And that goes all across Europe. And the problem is that's what we're seeing. That's really what we're seeing, I think, in Germany as well, is that, I mean, they're... Germany has a 25% of their grid is coal and 25% of their grid is wind. And it puts you in a really precarious situation when you're not allowed to flex any of that. Um, the UK is basically at, the UK has a lot of natural gas in their grid. I think it's 37% natural gas for UK, um, but the problem is the wind is 25% of their grid. Um, and this has massively increased over a very, very short period of time. So when you're, if, you're, if your grid is that much natural gas, that's great, but they don't have all the flexibility in here to where... So it, it feeds in this inflation piece, and it, these companies are actually going under because they haven't been able, there's no sort of backstop and the grid sort of didn't work here. And that's the situation we're all sort of going in as everyone doubles down on this wind and solar and doesn't have the adequate backup um, for these, uh, for actually using hydrocarbons in the system. Well, and, and you have to look at, you know, you, you touch on where Britain is, especially when you when you talk about their storage and, and how they rely a lot on natural gas. But we also forget that back in, was it 2017, where they closed one of their largest gas storage facilities 
because they didn't want to pay to upgrade it and to bring it up to spec. And the, in their view, they were already transitioning. We're not going to need this natural gas, so let's just let it close. And this became a very big thing because now you have the what, what it was, I think at the time, the UK's largest gas storage site. And by shutting this, you just increase the volatility. So when you look at what is happening in the physical market, it, in theory, the Russian gas is available. It's just nobody, but Russia's not giving you a discount. They're like, well, you're just going to pay the going rate. And if you don't want to pay the going rate, well, go into storage. So eventually, at some point, they're going to have to sit there and be like, all right, guys, we, we, we have to go out there. And Putin's just sitting there licking his chops, just rubbing his hands, saying, come on, guys. Oh, right. we're, but they we're are with Russia. Russia is withholding gas and they've made it clear that it they're going to withhold gas. It's, it, it's not on uh, on the pipeline that is the biggest one going into Germany. The gas is available. It's just nobody's buying it. It's, it is not it, like you can actually buy that gas at any given time, but it's at a rate that is massively higher. And right. so you and, can either that, you risk and draw down gas storage, which they're doing, or you can start buying physical gas and nobody's willing to do it. Yeah. So it's all time highs. I mean, I think the prices are, um, what was it, over $200 a barrel? I mean, it's come down, but it basically the equivalent would be $200 a barrel, right. um, um, for gas. And that's why we've seen that swapping. And this is where I really point out of this and this, this conversation I had with, with Dan and others is that <clears throat> it's not decarbonizing when you're moving this fast and you're, you're putting renewables into the, your system, and then you have a slight hiccup and you have to go from nat gas to oil in your power generation, you're increasing your carbon emissions. You're not decreasing them. And, uh, I, this is a, a segue. I mean, we could talk about this for a long time. And I, I think the UK and German energy crisis is huge because if we do what the administration wants to do in the US, which is um, reduce our emissions by 50% by 2030 and then have the, the grid um, net zero or the grid completely zero by 2035, um, that's huge. I mean, our grid will basically in a very, very rapid time period be largely wind and solar. And I have many, 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 many problems with that, as I mentioned in previous podcasts, because all of that, almost all of that wind and almost all of that solar is coming from China. And the supply chain bottlenecks we've seen across the globe, I mean, just because of COVID in China are huge, but if we didn't have the human rights issues um, within China, it would be one thing. It would still be problematic to be getting them. But we really do have these human rights issues. And I point out um, there's two things that if people haven't followed, it's the, and I'm holding this up. Okay, this is the, if you're not aware of human rights abuses and genocide in China, you don't have an excuse anymore because it's out there. And this is the UK Uyghur Tribunal, the actual judgment that came down. The Basically, it's a, it's a, um, it's not a legal binding panel by any means, but it's a group that came together within the UK. It's really an incredible document. They All the research that if you're familiar with it and you've read papers and you've read, there's a great uh, paper called um, In Broad Daylight, which is about the solar panel, like so, so solar panel supply chain in China and, and Uyghur abuses within that system and how 45% of all, all, all solar panels um, being out of China are coming from coming come from the Uyghur province of Xinjiang. But this report basically consolidates all this evidence and puts it together. It's extremely damning. And the reason it's really important is it brings it all the way to the top. So it links actually Xi Jinping and um, what's going on within Xinjiang and a direct linkage saying basically he ordered this, um, which which is 
case in point. I mean, we know that he's at the top of everything anyways. But the reality is this is a domestic policy agenda by China. And I think it's really, it sounds ridiculous, but I think it's really, really important for listeners and people to understand is that when we talk about Evergrande and we talk about the property sector and we talk about the serious economic issues within China, which are, the list is long and it's a very long myriad of, of things going on with China. Their domestic policy agenda and the fact that they're doing this thing within Xinjiang and the genocide that's taking place, it's really crucial to think about. Nobody's putting in context of a broader geopolitical uh, look back of what, what does this mean? What do they actually want for global governance changes? What do they want to do abroad? What do they actually see for um, how they see the world and what do they want to do? And I really also don't think people are thinking about it that when countries like this make choices like this, they these are big statements that they're making that are way more important to them than the economy. I mean, they paid millions and millions for, or billions, if not if not trillions, for the surveillance and the security systems that they put in place just in this country. I think it's something like eight cameras per one person um, within the province of Xinjiang. And all that surveillance technology, which is fascinating, has been exported to all these places around the world. But the point is, is that it is a domestic policy agenda. It is happening within China. And it does get to this point of what the hell is going on within China and um, can you rely on their economy anymore? And I think the answer is clearly you can't. You, you probably couldn't have since the crackdowns, the, the, the regulatory crackdowns began in November 2020, which doesn't seem to be a coincidence exactly of, of uh, the COVID outbreak. But I mean, now with, with this and all these supply chain things and the fact that the U.S., if we implement... Um, not being able to buy things from the province of Xinjiang. And it really probably should be spread to other parts of, of China as well. But if just wind and solar alone are going to have massive, massive implications, given that, you know, most of your, your third largest wind turbine manufacturer, Xinjiang Goldwyn, is in Xinjiang, this is really problematic. Well, and I think it's it's also important to look at, you know, none of this happens in a straight line. And and when you look at Xinjiang, Xinjiang and what they've done with the region, you know, they started a lot of the surveillance back in 2008. And, and it's, you know, if you look at why do they get these areas, even though it's highly Muslim, it, it's, they needed a buffer. If you look at what they've created and, and there was always friction there and they started with, well, we're, we're doing this for your safety. And then it started with, we're doing this with your safety. We're putting up all of these different cameras. We're going to start building this out. And then when it got to 2013 and there were several terrorist attacks uh, from the uh, the locals to against the Chinese, the the Chinese, they then use that as a means of of just expanding their capacity. So they started building, uh, you know, uh, essentially monitoring posts every every so many miles in increments to ha- make sure that there was enough uh, enough uh, assets there. And then if you became a person of interest, they openly said, "We are going to put a tracker on your vehicle." And that was that really accelerated in 2013, and then you saw where it continued to expand. So when, well, like, because some of the pushback is where when I when I talk about some of this, it's like, oh well, you know, we're only finding out about this now. Like this is just being made up. This is it's like no, this this isn't this this has a very big a very basic kind of that gradual piece where it starts out slow, then it accelerates, then there's a flashpoint that they grab onto and run with it. And now you have what is what is uh, currently transpiring in Kazakhstan, and what is happening in the other stands. You know, there these countries are being paid to look the other way because there you're seeing these these Sunni Muslims getting just slaughtered, or you know, being used in 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 work camps, getting abused in so many different ways. And and these are, I mean, historically speaking, from when you look through generations and settlements, these are 
historical Tashmanistan. This is the, these are Kazakhstani. And so you're watching them, but they're, they're being told stay in your lane, stay over there. And we will inject billions into your com- into your country and, and ignore what's happening over here. I think that's, those are, those are all really valid points. And it's, it's not, it's not an, an issue you can just pick up and understand quickly, right? It, it has taken right. me, I've spent, I spent the last year or two really looking at the, the Xinjiang issue. And, and in the beginning, I mean, Kazakhstan is relevant right now because obviously we have, uh, we, we had a, supposedly this was a, a protest on, on high energy prices. And, and maybe that's real, maybe that's not. Um, but it was an easy way for, you know, okay, there's this protest on high energy prices. And then supposedly they, it just got hijacked by the, by the crazies. And then they asked Putin to come in. Now, Kazakhstan is important because it is on the border. And I think Xinjiang is really important to think of. Pull up a map and just look up the province of Xinjiang. It's, it's X-I-N-J-I-A-N-G. Um, so if you yeah. look, if you Google that, and then you look at Kazakhstan, you look at these regions, it's a border region. And so when you read Xi Jinping's texts that he actually has in his global governance books, the border regions are talked about. It's securitization of the border region. So it's about security. It's about, you know, bringing in this whole national rejuvenation strategy and everything since Xi Jinping has been in. You're right that it started earlier in 2008, but it's been extended and really, really right. been. And what this this UK Uyghur Tribunal does is it's so damning on, on Xi Jinping because a scholar, Adrian Zenz, goes back and links his actual direct speeches to what he gave within the province of Xinjiang to his broader speeches and basically says this has been going on for a while. And so the, it's about controlling this border region. And clearly there's something going on with Russia and China, um, which is alarming now because clearly there's coordination between Russia and China with what's going on within Kazakhstan. And that border well, that border region does matter to them because Kazakhs are also a population within Xinjiang that are being, I wouldn't say not, right. not so much as, as the Uyghurs, but uh, are definitely being, um, pu- are, are being pushed aside. But now some of the, the key pieces there is, I mean, it happened, it started before 2008, but that was really when it took center stage because of what was happening. And that was when it really became kind of pulled to the forefront. But one of the things that I always find interesting when, you know, yes, LPG pricing was kind of the ca- like the straw that broke the camel's back. But when you look at what the protesters were demanding, none of it was about prices. It was all about, and and one of the, the, the nomenclatures that says, get the old man out. The old man out being Nazarbayev, who, who has been in power as a dictator since they became their own nation. And then he handpicked his successor, who is currently in control. So that was like, it, it wasn't something where, oh, well, propane prices are back down. So guys, it's time to go home. Let's get back to business. It's no, there is a political reason why people are so angry in Kazakhstan and what is happening in that area. So when you look at what is happening between Russia and China, now this is where I diverge with, with, with others is I think that there is, there's more fear than friendship between the two. And when you look at what is happening right now, Russia is rushing in under you know, using the CSTO treaty in order to come in aggressively. You know, they're they're bringing in Russian soldiers, Belarus uh, Which soldiers. Which is the first time they've really acted on one of these treaties, by the way. Yes, because this is a, a huge piece because they don't want China involved. You know, China claims about, I, I think it's 40,000 
square miles in Kazakhstan as their own under the same, because if you look at what China claims, and they use this when they were defending what's called the nine dash line, when you look at what they've done, uh, which was resoundingly defeated in 20, uh, 2014, saying that, no, you're actually taking people's you know, homes yeah, and you're taking people's they, land. They, they've never acknowledged that. Right. So the thing is, China claims a large part of Siberia, essentially where Ch uh, Russia keeps all of their uh, their eastern uh, naval assets and a large part of Kazakhstan, which uh, in uh, you'll be shocked to know that China claims a large part of oil and gas producing regions. Shocking. So when Only you look at production, there. no big deal. Right. So when you look at what they're doing, you have you have actual people, and they, I think it was the um, their airborne unit that was moved off of the border of Ukraine and flown directly into Kazakhstan because it's so important to maintain the influence that they have. Now, that is also something that if you look back into Ukraine, that was what also happened. And that was why Ukraine became such a big issue. And that's coming back to the Budapest memorandum. And you have these working pieces and it's unfortunate that we're running out of time because this goes back to the collapse of, of the USSR and how this was all structured. So then when you look at China, China's chomping at the bit to get a significant more amount of these assets. And they're just biding their time because they're like, we can, we can wait. There's, you know, no, nobody is coming from Xinjiang to Beijing. Like you have yeah. hundreds of thousands of, of, are like the Unless most desolate bus, areas. Uh, bus, to, yes. Right. So, so when you like, the, I read this this great book, the um, the um, Prisoners of Geography, and it just talks about how you have to cross an arid desert to get there. And then, so when you look at the bufferings that have been created and what has been done, like there's been a uh, a new build out, a renewed build out, I should say rather of. Uh, Chinese and Indian assets, and and the thing that is that is important to look at when you're when you're talking Russia, China, India, U.S. India, Russia was the first country, and in a matter of hours, to back India after the Ladakh incident where Chinese soldiers attacked Indian soldiers. They accelerated the delivery of S four hundred systems. The, there are Indian soldiers right now being trained trained within Russia how to use all of this equipment, and it's going to be used against China. So when you look at where this is, there is a very clear divide. And don't get me wrong, you know, an enemy of my enemy is my friend. Well, yeah, and I think I just a want to put a little uh, pause on that for a second because I know you, I know you have to jump off, and I'll probably, I'll probably round the circle with the listeners and explain a little bit more after you jump off. But I, I think it's we have to be a little bit careful because um, we've diverged may, way into geopolitics uh, in, in from this this energy podcast. But the <laughs> fact that China and Russia is not collude, I mean, I, I think that your point, enemy of an enemy is my friend. Um, I do think right now there's probably some there's probably some coordination and collusion by the Russian and Chinese. And you have a, a, a overwhelming, I think, bias in, in DC that always says, well, they're, they're not really good friends. So that always benefits us in, the, in, in when we're thinking about geopolitics as well. They're not really good friends. So they'll probably fight each other in the long run. Yeah. But if they both see vulnerability in, in the West, um, in the US and Europe right now, and they think now is an opportune time, it just makes sense. Right. So it, it makes sense to me that, um, the Chinese would be worried about Kazakhstan. It makes sense to me that 
that Russia would be worried about Kazakhstan, that they would both see as opportunistic to sort of be involved there. This is a border region to Xinjiang. The border region is already important to China. Part of China's national rejuvenation strategy, part of China's dream, part of everything Xi Jinping has talked about is about territory. And I think it's it's just and it's also just protecting that territory. And sometimes things look messy on a map that don't, and and moves look messy that that in reality I mean it's not perfect. Um but I do think this one's a, a relatively serious issue, but the, the it, they may not like each other, but doesn't mean they're not working together. Well, I, I so this is where I, I go by actions, not what DC says. And and so when you look at Putin, Putin is not a stupid individual. He has learned no, from the not. errors of the past. And he made they made an agreement with Germany and Germany immediately turned around and marched on Russia. So now you have a country that is by every action going against China. They have 146 million people and large parts of uh, essentially anything east of Mongolia, north of Mongolia, they speak more Chinese than Russian. So there is a big fear. And, and let's be fair, if the U.S. and China go to war, good luck getting a billion people or you know, you know, just using large numbers into into U.S. territory to attack. Now, it doesn't take much to march on Russia because you're you share a very large land border, and there's a huge amount of concern. Which, when you look at what Russia did when they had their their large Siberian uh, war games, and they quote unquote invited uh, several Chinese uh, people to observe the actions of a multi-discipline uh, war games uh, encompassing 54,000 soldiers. This was not like, oh, look at what you can ally to. This is, look at what happens if you invade North. So there is a, a very big, uh, you know, and, and again, it, it's, it's an agreement. I'm not saying that they're not going to try to take advantage of things, but there is a, an understanding and the actions are very much, which is why it's funny because India had had their back. They first were supported by Russia. Then they were supported by Japan. Then they were supported by Australia. Now, what do we know about China? China was very quick to say something about what Japan did. And when they when the, and the sanctions actually started against Australia after Australia backed uh, backed India after Ladakh, China never said boo about Russia. And so that's when I look at this and I say, I China right now needs Russia more than the other way around, but well, that can change at any time. Right. And that's, that's, I also think they know where their leverage is, right? They, they don't have to, I mean, they have leverage over it. They know where they can push on India and they know where they can push on Russia. And they know it's like friend enemies that works. I mean, they're closer together. It's the uh, Japan and Australia are you know, more democratic countries that they have to deal with and oppose. Right. Um, and we've seen that as well. So I'm going to, you, I know you have to run, you have a hard stop at the top of the hour. Um, don't worry, listeners, I'm going to keep going on with this conversation. But just to bring this back, gas right now, at least at the start of this podcast, 40 minutes ago was $4, um, um, $4 and eight cents. WTI was 78 20 and Brent was just over 80 bucks. Given all this volatility, I, I think we used to have a sort of, I, I, there's a couple dollar premium that's baked into this. So all this Kazakhstan volatility and Kazakhstan does produce about 2 million barrels per day of crude oil, at least they did in 2020. Um, is that, what are you thinking on, on oil prices with all this geopolitical volatility and, and given what is happening with the Fed and the fact that they're going to raise rates, dollars going to go up um, and that should go against, that should go against oil prices? So, so right now they're producing about uh, 1.7 million in black oil. They're they're black. They're back up to where they need where they were. 
So Kazakhstan has kind of flattened out. And, and even during the uh, a lot of this pushback in terms of what was happening with the protest, the the three refiners that they have were, were uh, operating the whole time. So there was minimal impact, not to say that there can't be more, but anybody who tries to take over from Kazakhstan also understands that it's important to protect these assets. And a lot of them are also funded by the U.S. and they're not looking to piss off the U.S. at this point. So when you look at that, and then you look at what's happening in Libya, you, you've had about 200,000 barrels return from Sahara. So you're starting to get some of that production come all the way back uh, full circle. I think this is going to increase some of that fear, especially when you look at CPC or what comes through the Caspian Sea and some of the other areas, because a lot, the, a lot of the issues weren't at the actual facility, but a lot of the crude is actually trucked. And it was the roads that were no longer safe, and it was the actual uh, drivers that were also went on strike. So that can that can spring up at any given time. But you want to look at the actual asset itself because those things can can be repaired quickly. I've I think the dollar continues to go higher. I think the dollar is going to drift. I you know I, I was long the dollar below ninety. Uh, I sold it above ninety six. Uh, I'm not looking to get back in the dollar yet, just because I think. You just go sideways at this point as you have a but lot that, of conflicting that, that moves. Should weigh, that, that's, a, that's a bit of a weight on oil. And I think yes. that's where these whole JP Morgan, Goldman, everybody, Bank of America, pie in the sky, $125 oil. I'm, I'm not, I mean, it, yes, there's scenarios we can get there. If traders really want to take it to above 100, they can. But I, I think the fundamentals are not, it, it, right. if I keep, I told people this previously, but if we were, if the market was as tight as everyone thought it was all of 2021, we would have seen a hundred then. Well, and if you just look at differentials, so China has slowed down buying ESPO and SoCal, which were trading at $7 premiums are now trading at $2 premiums, you know, and that's, that's between uh, October and, and uh, January. So you've seen a big slowdown. Now, you know, I've talked about Angola. We know that China has not been buying from Angola or West Africa to the same level, but they were buying a lot of this Eastern uh, Siberian, excuse me, uh, oil. But now those prices have actually come down. So when you look at the slowdown and they've actually cut the import quotas into China, and now that's that's a broad statement because they actually favored several facilities, which are mega facilities coming online, essentially pushing some of the smaller teapots to either shut down or just cease operation because they're not going to have flow. So when you look at what China is doing, and I and back to your point on on the underlying market, I think that people are overestimating demand, and and I know that everyone likes to talk about Omicron and COVID, but. I think that there is a much bigger problem when you look at the consumer, when you look at inflation, how much that's biting into everyday things. And now you don't have government transfers in the same level. You don't have your savings sitting at the same level that they were at. You you have savings rates falling. You have wages not keeping pace. So you're in and total agreement that, with me. Yeah. So I, I think that caps a lot of this upside. And then you add the pressure of raising rates because as the as the Fed goes away, well, how am I going to incentivize people to buy my bonds? Well, I'm going to have to offer a higher rate. So as rates go up, you're going to see the increased cost of borrowing, and then you're going to see the increased cost and the weighted average cost of capital or the WAC you know, starts to go up again. And you start to see a little bit of a normal market, but you have a fiscal and monetary drag that is going to continue. Fiscally speaking, 
uh, how many people bought everything that they needed to in 2020 and 2021 because they had all this free money from the government. So you went out and you bought the stove, the fridge, the extra car, you know, you added an addition onto your home. How much of that is going to happen again? And that's where I keep coming back to who's your incremental buyer? Who's your next buyer going you know, forward? I actually thought, and I, I know you need to run, so I'm going to, I'm going to, you're just going to tell me, we're going to give a, a stop in just a second. But I, I always thought that when I was looking at the economy and it was 2020 and I, I didn't know what I, what to, to think of the market in the beginning, but I thought, man, the summer's going to come around because I didn't know how big that stimulus was going to be. Obviously that Biden was going to win and that you're going to write just trillion dollar checks every five minutes. <laughs> but I really thought that at some point the hot tubs are going to come for sale. The dogs that no one can find at the, at the vet, at the the pet places you're, you know, you're going to have them rampant and running around the streets and those campers and, and, and snowmobiles and everything are going to come for sale. I think we're closer to that point. I mean, I think actually think this summer and potentially this fall is actually when you start seeing hot tubs for sale and stuff for sale, because I do think when you when you make those comments about payday loans and things, I do think you're seeing a, the weakening consumer. And I think that weakening consumer was largely, uh, it, especially last December and in yeah. November, October through December was covered up because everybody was saying, I'm going to have a good Christmas, damn it, because I didn't have right. one last year. We're going to come hell or high water. We're going on vacation. We're spending the money. We're doing whatever we have to. And I just think people's budgets are going to be a little bit, especially on, you know, the bottom half, you know, bottom 50% of the U.S. I think the consumer is going to be, and I, I mean, I'm looking at it. I, we're all looking at inflation and saying we're, I need to spend less and I didn't get the stove and I want one, but I probably couldn't get one. Anyone with the supply chain bottleneck. So I'm just not going to get it. Um, and and, and for, I think that's where a lot of folks are sitting right now. And for, and for listeners, you know, where, how do you track this? So the thing, the two things that I look at when I'm looking to see how this is going to shift is obviously retail sales. That's, that's first and foremost, you know, what are retail sales doing, but also inventory. Because when you look at inventory has been creeping higher and has actually been beating expectations and it's, it's a mixture of people not buying as much and it's the supply chain loosening up a bit, but it's, it's, that's why when you look at inventory to sales ratios, they're starting to improve a bit. And that's due to, as you said, like slowing sales a bit, you know, people that are, that are coming down and, and essentially sitting there and saying, well, I'm not going to get the new Samsung stove or LG stove because it's not going to be there. So I'm going to wait six months and, and, you know, maybe it'll be there and the prices will come down. So there's, there's a lot of this, but when you look at inventory, and I know we sp we spoke on a negative basis when you look at the economy, inventory rebuild is also going to be a, a little bit of a buffer, but it's lumpy. And, and at the same time, are you going to lock in prices at these levels? Absolutely not. But as a company, you, you still want to have a certain amount of, of consistency. So you'll, you'll do some buying of inventory, you know, in, in February because prices got a bit better. You got a deal and then you'll do another in April. So you'll see some of this, which is a, a net positive to the economy. But again, it's going to be lumpy and the consumer, which is over 70% of us GDP is still going to be the, the game changer. And, and you're just not going to see them come back in the same way at all in 2022. And I think that's going to be your biggest drag with some spurts of little strength as you get some rebuild of, of inventory, some, some investment from court from the, on the corporate side that may have just, uh, you know, try to avoid it or now supply chain costs are coming down. So they have some free CapEx that they can invest in. So there's, it's going to be a very interesting <laughs> to say the least 2022. I completely agree. I think it'll be great. Well, with that, I'm going to let you go, Mark. Um, I'm going to wrap Thank it up you. for the for listeners. So thank you very much. I'll talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. 
All right. Okay. So I know Mark had to run and I apologize that for the listeners. Um, and I'm, I won't keep this too long, but there, we covered a number of different topics um, and some of that a little bit disparate. So I want to kind of circle this back and bring this back to a coherent conclusion because we said we'd talk about you know U.S. inflation, the Fed. I think we talked about that at length. Um, along with Mark, I really do think there's a lot of softening that we're going to see potentially in the U.S. economy and globally, mainly because of these because we have real inflation and we're because we're going to have higher interest rates, which is something that's normal, right? It's going to we're going to be able to you know invest savings and things and and offset things a little bit, so that's going to be positive. However, it's going to this inflation is impacting the consumer. This inflation is impacting um, businesses, and we should see some some softer growth. And that does mean that um, especially with higher energy prices that you may not see that crazy demand um, that we've seen uh, crazy demand growth um, in oil and natural gas consumption, which means that you could see some softening in prices. And I don't mean softening, it's cratering. I just mean that we're probably not going to see those, that we may not see those pie in the sky levels. Um, and China is a big component of that because the slowdown in China will impact the slowdown in Asia and other places. And just because you don't have a consensus, especially a market consensus on the slowdown in China, does not mean that it's not real. And I think, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm much more open about really, you know, being, um, I would say, I'm, I'm, I'm more open about talking about China um, in a negative place economically. And I know these perma bears haven't been right for years, but I think it's really coming home to roost because the data does keep coming out in different forms. And there's only so much that China can cover up. And I think that you're seeing more and more industry analysts and pundits and folks and people because of the regulatory crackdowns that have taken place within China since November 2020, it has really gotten people fearful about the environment in which they can invest. And so there's only sort of a handful of folks left, like Charlie Munger, um, Tesla being one of them. Tesla just opened up a, uh, a showroom within Xinjiang, um, which is very controversial. Um, and we saw Charlie Munger is doubling down on Alibaba. Um, and he's also been a, he's, <laughs> that makes sense because he's been very pro-China and he's been, um, you know, ripping on Jack Ma, um, been very pro-Chinese government. So the folks who are heavily invested within China are sort of still kissing ass uh, to the Chinese government. And I think you're going to continue to see that. But I think the realities and the underlying underpinnings of what is growing the Chinese economy, which has been the property sector, which is over 30 percent of the property sector, um, is is falling apart. And even if it just flatlined and slowed, it would pull down and drag on the Chinese economy, which is going to drag on the Asian and potentially the global economy. And there are other pundits and analysts who say that, well, it's decoupled. And so we won't see that so much. And I don't think that's necessarily correct. I think a lot of these, um, things that we're seeing within China from a supply chain standpoint, we, we are starting to see some decoupling. We are starting to see more and more, uh, piece of the supply chain get outsourced to other areas, Vietnam and India and other parts of Asia. Um, but it's not fully, fully decoupled. And we still have so much being produced within China. So as long as we have this uh, secrecy in China, as long as we have a zero COVID case strategy, as long as we have volatility, as long as we have a regulatory crackdowns, we're going to see problems within the system. Um, and we don't have, we don't quite have clarity on that right now. And you know, I really emphasize, and I, I didn't do this great when I was speaking with Mark, but the reason I really emphasize the issues within Xinjiang is that if you are looking from a supply chain standpoint, if you're if you're focusing on the supply chain issues globally, if you're looking at the economy, you um, would have probably come across the stuff in Xinjiang from a human rights issue, for, just from an issue of of whatever's being made there is probably going to be impacted in the U.S. Um, furthermore, it's probably going to impact eventually globally because these human rights issues, these abuses and these documented, now this UK weaker tribunal, this documenting genocide, it's very, very serious. And it means that all this stuff made within the province of Xinjiang, which is a lot of textiles, which is, you know, you do have this uh, this Tesla showroom, which was just opened. And we just had an email, we just had a, a 
article that got posted on um, Wall Street Journal about it, it, quote, Intel erases reference to China's Xinjiang after social media backlash. And this is a, a really big issue because Basically, Intel had commented um, about chip manufacturing, and Intel had a note um, and commenting about Xinjiang, and they pulled, after social media backlist within China, they pulled that off. They actually pulled the, the word Xinjiang out of it. And so we've had, there's there's issues within China um, that country companies themselves are not able to basically talk to the West and say, hey, we're not making stuff in Xinjiang without having fear of reprisal within China. That's a huge issue. And that all social media is controlled within China. Nothing happens within within China that um, news and social media does not happen um, the way it happens in the US, right? information can leak out, stuff can get out there. And even if it's taken down, people are still aware of it and it pops back up again. That doesn't happen as much in China. And, you know, we, we see this within, you have to think about it in the context of this is that if Intel faced backlash from just talking about Xinjiang and pulling that, that's a really big deal. There's a reason why, if you're not familiar with the human rights abuses in Xinjiang, there's a reason why. And that's because China has, uh, controls most, China controls the state media within China, but China controls a lot of media outside of the, outside of China and does a really good job of influencing media, influencing, um, between surveillance technology and data and actual just news and the propaganda machine. They have a heavy influence and heavy hand in media abroad, especially within Europe um, and increasing actually in in Western media stations. So I think it's really, really important to think about that. Um, but from a supply chain standpoint alone, it is it's huge because it means that China's pushing back. I think there's been several articles on the media pushback when um, last month the the bill was passed on on. Xinjiang and and labor within um, within the within U.S. Congress when that was passed, there was immediate responses within China from the U.S. Sol- from the solar industry within China to push back on that, and that is because the vast amount of Chinese solar panels and Chinese polysilicon is made within Xinjiang, and it's a really important to point out if you pull up if you go on Carbon Tracker and you actually look at um, and you actually look at where the solar panels are per- or where coal power generation is done. So where the coal mines are at and actually the coal fired power generation. So if you look at that, you can see that there's a huge chunk that's concentrated of Chinese coal mines that's actually concentrated within the province of Xinjiang. And actually it's not, it's not um, carbon tracker, sorry. It is global energy monitor. So global energy monitor is a great resource in terms of seeing where these actual, so the, the, the coal mines as well as the coal fired power plants and the list of them. Um, and you can see how many coal fired power plants China's adding. So when people talk about this and they say, well, you know, the U S could not add, you know, we could get rid of all our coal fired power plants, but China's adding all these, that's a very, very, very real statement. China is adding coal fired power generation and actually coal mines. So they, they have 479 coal mines, um, in operate or 479 coal mines total 342 coal mines are in operation in China. 137 are proposed. And they have an absolute ton of coal-fired power plants. You can see, again, on Global Energy Monitor, a concentration of um, operating coal-fired power plants, many of which are actually in construction. But the point is that Zhejiang is rich in, in both coal for natural resources and having the coal mines. And then there's a huge chunk of coal-fired power generation. And it makes sense because you put, you know, China has increasingly over the years tried to move as much coal-fired power generation outside of the major cities um, to reduce smog and pollution and put them in other industrial centers. Xinjiang is definitely an industrial center. It's where stuff is made. Um, and this is where these, these 
human rights uh, um, allegations on, which are no longer allegations, but on forced labor and internment camps and forced assimilation. Um, the reason it's so big is because they make so much stuff there. So um, the reality is that a lot of it is probably made windmills and solar panels and textiles and t-shirts and jackets and, and everything are probably made from forced labor. And just for a power geek perspective, if you're actually looking at power numbers and coal plants from a megawatt, that's capital MW perspective um, for the province of Xinjiang. So for, for all of China, basically operating, you have over a million megawatts. Um, and for the province of Xinjiang, it's over 60,000. Um, and that's uh, and then you have a, a significant amount that are actually permitted and in construction as well. Okay, so just that's to wrap up on China, um, Xinjiang and everything going on within, uh, and actually the, the the former police head of Xinjiang, so one of the bigwigs that was in Xinjiang, it was just announced um, by the commun the CCCP uh, Communist Party that he will actually be being moved to Hong Kong. Um, that should be alarming for a lot of folks because it means that one, uh, it, it looks relatively public that they're moving him because they're making the statement, um, and it also means that the crackdown and it's already, I mean, Hong Kong's gone basically from the. Uh, the national security law um, and everything that's happened within Hong Kong and the recent elections, um, which didn't allow any pro-democracy people in it. There was actually just the, a third um, and one of the last uh, pro-democracy newspapers was just removed. Um, Apple Daily was one of the big ones. But now the former head of the Xinjiang province, one of the big police state guys, um, is now going to be in Hong Kong. So that's an, uh, an interesting uh, inter uh something to watch and keep an eye on. Um, this is a huge, huge problem. And as much as China talks about it, it not being an issue and this being fabricated, this problem is not going to go away. And this is going to continue to come to light over the course of 2022. And I do think it's going to have a significant impact on supply chains and, and costs and have ripple effects globally. Um, separate from Xinjiang, the property sector is the property sector problem is it's not a. It's not that it's not just going away. There is sort of no end in sight. Also for this property sector issue, and and I think for folks who keep saying that you know Evergrande was not China's Lehman Brothers moment, I, I always say it doesn't matter whether it's their Lehman Brothers moment or, or not. There's so many other property developers. There are um, hundreds and hundreds of these property developers. And Evergrande, you know, the, the couple things that have, have come out is Kaiser has missed bond payments. Um, lots of smaller entities, smaller um, companies have been basically asked for early payments for their offshore bond payments. Essentially, in the course of 2022, you will have over nearly a trillion dollars in offshore bond payments due. The reality is most of those are not going to get paid. Um, and then supposedly, according to rating agencies um, and probably rating agencies within China, is that the onshore stuff looks fine, right? Onshore bondholders are just fine. And I would question that because um, it, the data is not really reliable. And I mean, I say this, I mentioned this with Mark. There's a great, uh, the Little Red podcast has a great episode called Shake Up or Shake Down. And it's talking about China's new red economy. Um, and I think that this this woman who talks about, there's, there's two folks that talk about it. The first guy on the podcast, I think is, you know, he's completely bought into this very pro-China rhetoric and saying that it's going to be just fine and believes that's a sort of ring fencing. I don't know how you could actually, you can go into the Bloomberg Terminal, or Wall Street Journal, Financial Times, just type in China property. And the charts that you're going to see the data that you're going to see is extremely alarming. And what you see are, um, I think, a January 9th article from Bloomberg says China moves to give, quote, China moves to give state firms more power, Evergrande update. So you have um, 
Shimo, you have tons of these companies that people thought were secure, right? That they thought they were the good property developers and they've defaulted on payments or they're having issues. And the real issue with this is that because property probably makes up over 30% of the Chinese economy, it means that there are a lot of jobs at stake here. So there are folks that have not been working. I think it's a reason why China has, you know, kept their part of the reason they've kept their zero COVID case strategy is because their economy is in turmoil because it is slipping um, and they don't want people to know about it and they don't want people to see it. So you keep people out, um, you keep people from coming in, you keep people from coming out and you, they don't see it. Uh, Evergrande was ordered to actually um, destroy several of their um, half-built buildings um, in a certain area that had people nervous. So the fact that you, you have tons of un, you know unfinished buildings within China, right? It's not, um, it, people talk about the ghost towns you see, they talk about when you think about the East Asian crisis and you think of Thailand and you think of all the empty property building, all the empty buildings, there's lots of places in China where you have that. And the problem is that you, the property sector is just a huge component of the economy and it's actually a store of wealth. And so people um, put a lot of mo their money into these property sectors. Some of the, on, on this podcast, the, the guy who was arguing on, on behalf of China and the, and the pro side and saying that they were going to be just fine was saying that, you know, they're, um, the, they put actually a decent of money down on the down payment. So most of these properties are paid for. The problem with that is, um, and this this woman points it out, Ann Stevenson Yang points it out, is that it's not a transparent system, right? So um, China can control the media and they can make sure um, they if property prices go down in one province that basically the other province doesn't find out, they'll control the media, they'll control the narrative. So people can find out, they can do Weibo chat, they can do different things on chat forums, but it's quelled pretty quickly. Um, and actually, and there's no incentive to really push back if you're going to get in trouble. So if China wants to clamp down on the people for protesting or getting mad, they will. And so I think the people don't have a ton of recourse here. And that's what's really problematic because you're not going to hear, you would say, well, what about the social unrest? And what about the people? And people say, well, you don't really have social unrest. Of course, you don't have social unrest within China because the people know they're going to get in trouble. They could really have social unrest on their hands and that the fact that they have a very high youth unemployment right now that's rising. Um, they have a slowing economy. The property sector is, uh, they're losing jobs left, right, and center. So if you're not developing. And so the the people that are pro-China and the people that say they're going to ring fence this and make it work are saying that China will just stimulate, they'll just stimulate their way through this and they'll just keep this going. You can't keep building a property sector when no one's living in the houses. Like eventually that's going to catch up and, and come home to roost. And it already is coming home to roost. But I don't think the answer is that they can just stimulate their way through this the way they have done in the past and just spend this money is really going to work. Um, and the other point that this woman makes, which is great, is when she I was talking to Mark and she's laughing and she's literally is laughing within the podcast because she's remembering stories of when she would research firms and companies within China. And I think it's really important to point this out because she talks about you know, she's an investment analyst, right? And and she's looking at companies to look at and invest in. And she would go find the company within China and that's making X, you know, is making something and then um, would look at what they're actually doing. And the reality is, is what they were, they would say they're making this uh, a certain amount of cash flow and they would say they're posting this amount of earnings and they make this widget. And she would go in there and it would be a guy, you know, on a, a single assembly line and with a little, a, like one, you know, actually a you know, churning coal and they'd be burning coal, a little pile of coal, and they're not making anything. So essentially, you know, it, it's like a lot like the dot-com bubble where these companies didn't actually exist. And I think this stuff is very, very rampant within China. And it's something that people have to realize is that a lot of the people who are the bears on China, the, the ones like this woman, have real stories to back it up. There's a reason why she has a negative view on China. And a lot of that has to do with the corruption and the stuff that she's seen and the fact that these companies don't really exist. And so when you're trying to paint a bullish story and a bullish narrative for how China gets out of this problem that they're in, 
you could be the U.S. with the best institutions in the world and rule of law and, and uh, the ability to protest, the ability, you could have all of this stuff and you probably couldn't get as, get out of the situation that China's in, in a good, uh, w- w- without getting your, your knee skin. So China's in trouble. Um, the fact that the media and the market has not quite woke up, up to that is, um, it doesn't really matter. They are backsliding and they have some serious, serious things, um, pains within the economy that they're going to have to deal with. Um, and I don't think they're going to deal with it well because they have a top-down system and um, they don't have a market-based approach and they don't have rule of law and they don't have institutions. So I think we're going to look at um, a much, much slower path for China over the next several years. And that could really mean a lot more turmoil and a lot more actually uh, geopolitical volatility, as we talked about with Kazakhstan, as um, we're looking at what I mentioned with Hong Kong and potentially with Taiwan. All these are many, many issues that I don't think a lot of folks um, in the marketplace are baking in. Of, of real potential aggression. I'm not saying it's imminent, um, but the, the potential aggression from China, I think, is very, very serious. And I'm going to close this by, you know, wrapping this up by talking about the U.S. and energy prices and um, and Europe. And I think really watching the European story is very, very important. Um, what the European Central Bank is doing, um, that how they're talking about the fact that the European Central Bank talks so much about climate change, um, and the fact that they are talking about they, I mean, they have this this speech which I referenced, um, and they're talking about essentially, you know, how how to manage and deal with this and having these price spikes. This is something that the U.S. is not doing the same thing. So, you know, I've talked about investor pressure and where it comes from, and I do think a lot of it does start in um, starts in Europe, um, and it comes down the pipeline. The uh, the U.S. Federal Reserve has not taken on the task of climate change. I think they already have a a very hard mandate just dealing with full maximum employment and price stability are huge. And I mean, the European Central Bank talks about making sure prices are stable as well, which they have not done. And so when they also add in dealing with climate change, the problem is it incentivizes them to want to keep interest rates low, right? And it it wants them to, they have to keep interest rates low in order for this stuff to work. And the energy prices we're seeing within Germany, the fact that we're seeing utility providers go under, the fact that we're seeing so many utility providers go under in the UK. And the fact that weather is dictating, you know, if you have an off quarter or an off month or anything, and you do have less hydropower, and you have less solar power, and you have less wind power, and you're not generating that electricity, it's really, really problematic without these offsets. And then so we're seeing these dramatic price spikes in natural gas. And the answer by the European Central Bank and, you know, the International Energy Agency is that, well, if we just had more of this other power would be fine. And that's simply not the reality. And the UK is case in point, and they've shown it, you can have all the wind and solar um, and renewable power you want. But the only thing increased in those time is biofuels and biofuel, you know, bioenergy is actually they're burning wood. Um, So the Paying attention to European energy prices is huge. What the winter looks like, um, and how what's going on on the border of Ukraine um, with Russia, how the how the U.S. sanctions play, you know, if the U.S. sanctions them, how this plays out within Europe. Um, Europe is in a between a massive rock and a hard spot with um, with Russia, and we're going to cons- we're going to continue to see that over the next um, several weeks and months, especially during this winter. And lastly, we will see what the U.S. Um, how the how the uh, administration responds to the inflation number, um, which, which I don't have yet. Uh, last month, before inflation numbers came out, the administration did the briefing and put out, you know, you saw the, the U.S. administration actually talking about the Biden administration putting out charts and, and they had this thing on their website on December 14, 2021, called, quote, progress at the pump. And they were talking about the small decrease in by a few cents of, of oil prices and what that has meant for the decrease in, in gasoline prices. And so essentially they were bragging about the progress of the pump. And I think that's a it's not a good tactic for the administration. I don't think it's going to work um, b- 
because even as, as Mark was saying, we were talking about in the podcast, even if the rate of inflation comes down, which it actually should, a supply chain bottlenecks, lots of different things. If the rate of inflation comes down, there are many reasons to suggest that it might not, especially with, with supply chain constraints. But even if it comes down, it doesn't mean that we still don't have inflation, right? It means we have we could have stagflation and prices are not going to necessarily decline. And that puts uh, the administration and the Fed in a tough spot. And I, I think we're going to continue to see, as we have seen um, with these Fed minutes, of the Fed is going to have to be increasingly hawkish and work on inflation because they know it has, um, has severe repercussions for the U.S. economy. And all of this, um, while I apologize for being long-winded and I apologize for 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 some of the listeners who may not think it, it impacts energy prices, um, trust me, in, in future podcasts, I'm going to continue to go into geopolitics and China and all these things and talk about them in greater depth and greater detail. Um, it absolutely impacts energy prices. It act- absolutely impacts your business. Um, and understanding that um, major issues within, within China and Russia could have reverberations through the, the global economy um, throughout the course of 22, I think is very, very serious. Um, um, it could impact energy prices, the upside, and that there's geopolitical risk premiums. Um, but these slowdowns within China and these potential concerns within overall inflations globally, I think really do have a cap sort of some up upside to energy prices in terms of um, in terms of oil prices. And and it means that these sort of pie in the sky, well over $100 a barrel, again, like what they say, they can happen. Um, they may not be nearly as realistic. So with that, I'm going to close. Again, it is Monday, January 10, 2022. This is the first of this year's recorded Petroners podcast. Um, it was an honor to have Mark Rosano back on the podcast. I thank you guys so much for listening. Really appreciate it. And have a wonderful week, guys. Bye. <laughs>